Greetings, Internet. I'm John Bailey, and in this week's episode of Popcorn Junkie, I've got somewhat of a professional setup. I've got... I don't know how well it was going to pick up on mic, but I've got some uh, audio dampening, like, foam uh, set up in front of the mic. So hopefully that'll kind of mitigate any real bad, you know, any real, like, bad audio. But um, uh, this week, it's still more uh, Netflix and chat. We're going to be discussing uh, Disney Plus's Hamilton uh, production, like, video uh, Eric Andre special, Legalize Everything, the documentary for Betty White on Netflix, Betty White, the First Lady of Television, and then I watched a bunch of stuff on Disney Plus this week. Uh, Frank and Ollie, the documentary about um, two of the two of Disney's uh, longest running and most well, be- your most beloved animators, uh, Frank Thomas and Ollie John- Thompson, Thomas, Frank Thomas and Ollie Johnston. Uh, plus, I rewatched the original Jungle Book from '67 and its sequel. I don't know why I did the sequel. Probably just morbid curiosity, I guess. Uh, Frozen 2, Dinosaur from 2000, and Ralph Breaks the Internet. So, let's. without further ado, let's get started. Salutations, ladies and gentlemen. It's the Popcorn Junkie here for a little Netflix and chat. Alright. This first one is probably going to be the most contentious just because I know how rabid uh, the fan base is for this show. But, um, yeah, I did see Hamilton live in Cleveland when it came by because my parents are um, are uh, season ticket holders uh, for the Cleveland Playhouse. Uh, and um, I liked it then and uh, never really got – I never really was, like, a big fan of it. I just, like – yeah, that was a good show. I'm glad I saw it. And we're we watching it for for the Disney Plus video. Uh, it is it is not bad. It is a very solid uh, production of the show. It's very solid, like cinematography. If you wanted to see Hamilton and you can't afford to see it live, this is the next best thing. That being said, uh, this show is also very. Uh, Heavy in the discourse, as it will, as you, as, as uh, uh, many of you may or may not know, um, it's a very hot button. I think because it became such a phenomenon that people begin to um, dig into it and found that it's not, you know, try to, you know, are finding things to critique about it, but you know, there's still the rabid fan base defend, you know, defending it and loving it to this day, and. Um, I think the biggest thing for me is that knowing that how knowing that Lin Manuel is is um, not exactly adhering very strictly to historical accuracy. I'm always one for if you're going to represent actual events happening, you might as well you know actually represent them factually. Uh, but Hollywood and Broadway just don't seem to want to do that, <laughs> so. Yeah, it's not. It's riddled with historical inaccuracies. You're better off just watching a documentary or something like that. So yeah, but um, there is also the criticism of using a diverse cast of people of color to still play white characters. While there is, there were there were some you know non-white people at that time. They're not really represented in this show. It's all 
you know, hey, let's let, you know, people of color play white people for a change. And that's kind of the gimmick. And um, it's not a bad thing. Like, having a show with a predominantly, you know, black and Latinx cast, um, that's a good thing. And, you know, having a show that's, you know, embraces hip-hop music and uh, that style is solid, too. You know, once again, it's not a bad... That part's not a bad thing, but it is kind of weird that you're positively portraying the people who would have owned you at that time in this show and making them cool and hip with the youngins as it were and um you know there's also the critique of how um Lin-Manuel wrote the women in the show uh, and how they're basically kind of just devoted to the guys either that or they're they're, they're just you know uh they're, you know there's they're you know it's the Madonna and the whore thing it seems to be, and they're all in. They don't. They barely have any of their own agency. They're all in connection to, like, even Angelica. Her whole arc is in connection to Hamilton. And you know, people have uh, said before when the show first came out that it doesn't that it doesn't pass the Bechtel test, which isn't you know end all be all, but it's like a nice litmus test of like just how well are you writing your female characters. And this doesn't, this can't even pass that. So, yeah, um, it's not perfect. I will say the songwriting is solid. Uh, it's got some good bops. <laughs> um, also, uh, for those, it's a minor thing, but for those who've seen the show live, uh, Disney did censor out the F word because, of course. And, um, yeah, uh, it's, if you wanted to see Hamilton, now you can. And I'm, I'm in favor of that with everything on Broadway, too. Make something, I mean, charge for it if you want. If you don't want to lose money on it, fine. But um, make Broadway shows more. And they're doing this. I mean, uh, Metropolitan Opera has had you has had you know had the option of seeing their productions live in theater in theaters. And I remember taking my great aunt to see those a couple of times, and there was solid productions there too, like the camera work and whatnot. So I mean, making things more accessible to people is always good. And um, yeah, so now I think that's the biggest thing for me is that um, that I'm not as into this show as a lot of people, and you know I'm willing, I'm much more will, you know, willing to look into the criticisms than. Uh, you know, just blindly say, oh my god, isn't this the best thing ever? But, you know, I'm not going to begrudge you for really enjoying it because it's just, you know, it's solid music and it's a great soundtrack. But, um, you know, just don't pretend the show is beyond reproach, so to speak. Also, uh, I got some, so I got some thoughts on Lin-Manuel himself, but we'll save that for the discussion. Uh... Next, the next newer thing I watched was uh, Eric Andre's new special. Not used to seeing him as a stand-up. I'm more used to him in the same capacity as like a Sasha Baron Cohen, where he is great at pre- messing with people and play and using his anonymity to play with people's expectations. That's why I'm looking forward to that movie of his with Tiffany Haddish coming out. But um, yeah, this is a bit of that, but it's. It do, he does go into the more of the traditional stand-up storytelling sort of thing. And he's funny, because he's Eric Andre. 
I didn't like him in this capacity, though. I feel like his manic nature is better suited to sketches than it is to stand-up. Because stand-up is better for, like, storytelling. Storytellers do amazing at, stand- at like, stand-up now. And he does great with the jokes. Like, he does a great prank. He ends the show with a, with a cell phone prank with one of the audience members, and it's hilarious. But, um... And he has good running bits throughout the show. So it's not a bad special. I just think I prefer Andre when he's being more of the manic, his manic persona on the Eric Andre show than he is in uh, this. So, yeah, I mean, if you want to watch an Eric Andre comedy special, just don't expect it to be exactly like the show. Expect it to be Eric Andre being manic and then also telling some neat stories. So, yeah, it was fun. No regrets. It's no regrets here. Um, I also decided, I forget what it was. I th- it was, um, my mom and I were talking this past week at some point, and I, the conversation about Betty White uh, having a black sidekick on her talk show came up, and I decided to watch the documentary that Netflix had on her. Betty White, the first lady of television. And it's not an amazing documentary. I feel like it's not as, it's not like compelling. It's not great documentary filmmaking, but it's standard. And hearing these people talk about and recounting Betty's career is phenomenal because I had no idea how her career goes back to like the forties. And she's had a long, prolific career from doing essentially improv comedy on the radio before television was a thing. And then having one of the initial first ever talk shows on television and being one of the first being one of the first television stars, essentially. You never think about that. But yeah, she that's how far back her career goes. And then. Yeah, the fact that she had a a black co-host and band leader who would do, like, he would do um, soft shoe and, like, uh, tap as well as sing on the show as well because the dude was talented. And Network told her, look, you got to ditch the guy because we want to do well in the South and they're not into that. And she's like, okay, no, we're not doing that. Nah, they they can shove it. Not a cent, not in those, that's, I'm obviously paraphrasing, but... Um, but yeah, that's essentially her take. Yeah, we're not doing that. And then they canceled her. So, uh, but she went on to do uh, Mary Tyler Moore show. I wasn't aware she was on that. She was phenomenal on that too. If you haven't gone, go back and rewatch uh, Mary Tyler Moore if you haven't seen it yet. Betty White shows up as like this Martha Stewart, proto Martha Stewart um, homemaker, has a nice, sweet on screen persona. As soon as the camera's cut, she's like this raging narcissist. <laughs> And she's hilarious. She's such a... She's great at delivery. She's the best. Then it covered her time on Golden Girls, which is, you know, per, that was a, just... I want a, I want a movie about the making of the Golden Girls because that had to have been amazing behind the scenes with those four. They're just the best. And, um... And, yeah, so, uh... You know, then of course uh, they they actually did delve a bit. Her uh, husband for the longest time, from the '60s to the '80s, was a guy named Alan Ludden, who was the host of uh, Password. And they and she hasn't married since. Like she had two marriages before him, 
they don't talk about those. But she never got remarried after Alan Ludden. That was kind of like her fun, her official marriage. So it's like, I, I'm you know, there's never going to be another one like him. So I'm good. Um, it also touches a bit on Hot in Cleveland and um, the proposal as well, because like Ryan Reynolds is interviewed, Valerie Bertinelli is interviewed. Um, the one girl, there's this one girl who was uh, from the Mary Tyler Moore show. They interview her, and Carl Reiner is interviewed because because they had uh, they they played opposite each other on episodes of Hot in Cleveland, which is not as ba- not as bad as I thought it was. Like I think she is the she's obviously the Sophia of that show. And she's the reason to watch it at all, I feel like. But it's not... I, um, I remember got some buzz locally because it's a show based centered, you know, centered around living in Cleveland. But never really kicked off. Like, nobody really cared. And I think that's a shame because, yeah, Betty White's... I think the th- whole thing is Betty White's the reason to watch it. And without her, you know, uh, without her, why even bother? If it's just her, why are you going to, you know, check in? But yeah, I recommend watching, if you haven't seen it yet, I highly recommend at least watching it once, just so you have an idea of, like, just how amazing Betty White's career was. It was crazy watching it, knowing Carl Reiner just passed away, because at the time of filming and release, it was, he was still alive. And it's crazy to think that now he's gone, too. Um... But yeah, uh, as another documentary, I'm getting more documentaries in this 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 time around. I'm kind of glad for it. Uh, Frank and Ollie. Um, for those who don't know, Frank and Ollie were two members of the the Nine Old Men, who were the longest running um, collection of animators at Disney for years. They were like the top animators at Disney. And, like, during the film era. Because there were guys, there were big names there in the shorts era before they started making films. But Frank and Ollie were two of the guys who were biggest, they were probably the most prominently known. And at least the most well-respected out of all the animators there. They're the ones who, if you've seen The Incredibles, those two old men they inter- that, that are commenting on the superheroes coming back at the end, that's Frank and Ollie. That because they're so I I mean I knew about them because I would watch some behind the scenes stuff about the old movies and Frank and Ollie were just always just like the most lovable the most um, uh, charismatic uh, animators that you would that you had seen and getting to know them their backstory and how they met how they became like they were like best friends all the way till their deaths and it it really is something to watch. Um, Basically, uh, they met at Stanford uh, Art College. Uh, Frank Thomas uh, told Ollie Johnson that, hey, Disney's hiring uh, artists since they were both art students. And Ollie was like, sure, sure, why not? And he uh, got in without even thinking about, without even trying that hard. Like, he wasn't even concerned about getting in because he was more concerned about finishing school. And then all of a sudden, oh, I'm working at Disney now. Um and how in the early days, every animator like had a focus. Some guys were great at proportion. Some guys were amazing at like expressions and making these animated these two D images fee- generate emotional emotion and whatnot. So everyone kind of had their their lane that they were great at. Um, they also were big on slapstick. So they like they mentioned how um, Charlie Chaplin was a big inspiration when it came to their style of slapstick. Um, they talk about the tr- production, production troubles with Snow White and how they almost bankrupted the whole thing. And then they showed it to, I think, Bank of America. 
And um, the guy left without saying anything. And so uh, they followed him out to his car. And it's like, well, what do you think? And he's like, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen. You, you, you know, you have our support. So it's like, holy crap. They were doing just with that early mid-production level stuff. They were able to be like, they were able to convince some stuffy bank executive to grant them the loan to finish the movie. And the fact that... Um, for the early years, up until Walt be- began um, doing shows on television and opening the theme park, Disney was very always on the verge of bankruptcy because their movies, some movies would do amazing, like Cinderella, and then the next movie, Alice in Wonderland, never brought, never made back its budget initially. So it's crazy to think that we could have never had a Disney if Walt, you know, didn't do these side ventures. If it was if they if they had just focused on the animation, they were not bringing in enough money to stay afloat. And it's crazy to think that we almost had a world with no Disney animation. But um, you also get to meet Frank and Ollie's wives, who are wonderful. They're just as charismatic and funny as their husbands. Um, they would draw gags. Everyone at the studio would draw gags of each other. So like when Ollie was starting to lose his hair, they would like <laughs> they would all you know poke fun at him for it. <laughs> um, they also directed. They also mentioned a bit that I loved, which is uh, during the production of Bambi. They were doing all these auditioning all these kids for Thumper, and animators were like, oh, "God, this thing's gonna be so boring. We need something to add some energy to this this whole to this whole thing." And then there's this kid, the kid who ultimately ended up playing Thumper, um, who's doing you know who's this most this. This over-the-top obnoxious kid. It's delicious. Yeah, like you think the most kid, the worst kid who can't act, and it's like, oh my god, the casting director hated them. The animators were like, that's our guy, that's our kid, that's who we need, and he ultimately went on to play uh, Thumper. <laughs> Crazy to think. Um, but yeah, it's and then of course uh, their personal lives, like how um, Ollie has this love of trains and even built a fully functioning train track in his backyard that he could take people on rides on frank worked with a bunch of uh of the other animators and had a band had their own band called the firehouse five um yeah it's really even in their old age they were like they were like the best grandparents you could imagine they were they were the best and yeah i recommend the the documentary for sure and yeah, just remember that these two guys were part, were kind of helped. They also showcase a lot of the animated segments that they worked on for each movie. And it's like, oh wow, they worked on that one. They worked on this one. So all these animated bits that you would remember, like um, I think Frank or Ollie worked on the ice skating bit from Bambi. Um, and uh, what's another one? Uh, they should the. Uh, Squirrel bits from uh, Sword in the Stone they worked on. Uh, uh, there's I forget which part of Snow White they mentioned, but yeah, like how, how, um, just all of these bits, all of these bits from the classic Disney movies were stuff that Frank and Ollie worked on. I you know all the, you know how Frank and Ollie worked on this part, this part, this part, and so these iconic bits are all Frank and Ollie stuff. That's really cool. I I, I love learning behind the scenes stuff like that. Speaking of Disney, uh, I watched a bunch of Disney movies, some of which were because of my niece, some of which because I was in the mood. Uh, because I watched Jungle Book last week, the remake, I rewatched the original. It doesn't hold up quite as well. 
Uh, the animation quality is definitely not as good because they're in the Xerox. They're already in the Xerox era, which is where they took cells from previous Disney movies and Xeroxed them to recycle animation. So, like, they recycled bits from Sword in the Stone, Bambi, Snow White, all of these, all of these other. You see it more in Robin Hood for sure, but it's a, but it's also he, but it's also a lot of it in, is here in Jungle Book too. Um, Bagheera is kind of a dick. <laughs> Throughout the whole movie, I'm so used to Bagheera uh, as Ben Kingsley uh, that I'm not that I forget the here the first time Disney uh, 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 tried to do Jungle Book. He's just a constant like nagging. Come on, we gotta take you back to the man village. Oh god. Um, Also, apparently, last minute, the reason the kid for Mowgli kind of stinks is because. Last minute, the actor they had hit puberty and his voice changed, so they needed a last minute replacement. And Wolfgang Reitherman, the director, just brought in his son to do the voice. And it, yeah, I don't think Bruce Reitherman ever did any other acting because he's not very and he's not very good. Honestly, he just kind of stinks. Um, but that's also the director's problem too, because apparently this had a very uh, trouble. I mean, this was the production where mid-production Walt died. Uh, during the making of it, so this was the last. This was one of the last ones Disney had a hand in making. So yeah, it was very troubling, and the fact that it even got out is uh, kind of a miracle. But um, it's also very gag heavy. So they took what is essentially a very serious, dramatic look at life in co- uh, pre-colonial India, and um, they made it like silly goof 'em ups. Disney even said during the production, like, to, 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 to held this, held the book up. See this book? Don't read it. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, not even trying to adhere to what's in the book. <laughs> Which is why I kind of like the remake more because it does try to adhere a bit more to the tone of those original stories. Um, fun fact: uh, the original Jungle Book is not just about Mowgli. Mowgli is one of the major characters in a lot of the stories. It's a, it's an anthology book. This is where you also get um, Ricky Tiki Tavi, um, the mongoose. Chuck Jones did a whole bunch of great shorts centered on the Jungle Book stories. And uh, yeah, I I haven't read them yet because I also know that Richard Kipling is a kind of a dick. Uh, I can b- talk about him in the in the discussion segment as well. <laughs> But we'll get into that. But I won't get into it here. Um, the fact that the vi- I also find it weird that the villain takes about takes over the half of the movie to even show up. That's what that's another part that I like about um, the remake. Shere Khan's there from the beginning, and you can tell how menacing he is. So yeah, it's 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 a bit. It's definitely a hot mess. But um. Like, the songs are great. All the Sherman Brothers songs are great. King Louie is an interesting thing. Um, I won't say it's compl- not completely... It's, it's completely devoid of racism, but there's definitely the concern that King Louie is a racist caricature of black people. And ironically, during the production, they were going to have Louis Armstrong voice King Louie. And the staff at Disney, I think either Disney himself or somebody there was like, hey, um, we're having this ape character who sings a song about I want to be like you to a man. And you're going to have him voiced by a black man who, you know, who uh, bl- with black people having a tendency to be depicted as apes. And they were like, yeah, let's not do that. And they hired Louis Prima, who is Sicilian. 
actually. So, so Louis Prima is a Sicilian, so that he so he was brought in to avoid any connotation, any sort of connotation with black people being considered apes and having to you know wanting to be like you, the real people. Um. So it avoids that, but it also, but you know, the fact that Blue shows up with the coconuts as the big monkey face, that's kind of awkward. Like it's, I won't say, I'll say this, it's not as bad as The Crows from Dumbo or Song of the South. There's hints of it, especially since jazz was such a predominantly black um, art form, but I think they they managed to skirt any real controversy because Louis Prima's Sicilian, so... They don't have to worry about the idea of having a black man sing a song called "I Want to Be Like You" to a white a kid play an Indian kid played by a white kid. <laughs> so yeah, um, yeah. I'll say this much: that stuff is more interesting than the sequel, which is oof, how you know the first movie was a hot mess, but at least it had some it had its moments. This sequel has like nothing. Like, the voice cast is a decent one-to-one. You have John Goodman as Baloo. You have Tony Jay, who voiced Shere Khan in, um, in Tailspin. And Haley Joel Osment is all right as Mowgli. Mae Whitman, the voice of Katara, who I knew at the time as the voice of Katara, uh, voiced um, Shanti, who is the na- which is the name they gave to the little Indian girl who uh, lured Mowgli back to the man village at the end of the first movie. Uh, John Reese Davies plays Mowgli's father, Mowgli's adopted father. So it's a solid cast. And then, like, Phil Collins shows up, not to sing, but to play a vulture. And it's really weird and off-putting. And I don't know why it's there. Um, it regresses the story also because Baloo and Mowgli kind of have to revert back to how they were in the first movie. And it's like they didn't really change um, the writing is super weak. The animation's better, but it's not, like, great either. You know, at least it doesn't recycle stuff and look cheap, so it looks better, but it's not, doesn't really help, um, because the writing is much worse. Uh, retreads so many of the same beats of that original movie. Uh, not to mention the fact that Ranjan, who is a character they added, who is Mowgli's adopted brother, is, he's the worst. Like, Bruce Reitherman is it wasn't great he's olivier compared to the kid who played ranjan like wolf ranjan is the worst i hated it uh the songs also aren't as good uh like their big one their bare necessities sort of like i want to be like you big showstopper is w-i-l-d and it's sucks it's just sucks um it just, the songs aren't good. And then all of a sudden it ends with a lava pit for some reason. So yeah, Jungle Book 2, skip it. If you missed it the first time, be glad because it still sucks after a decade. Almost two decades now. God, it sucked. Uh, speaking of sequels, speaking of sequels, here's one that doesn't suck. Frozen 2. My niece has been over uh, this past week and she likes watching movies and she wanted us to watch, wanted me to watch with her. So we watched uh, Frozen 2 again. And, uh, yeah, it's good. Story and dialogue is deeper than the original. The songs aren't as good. The first has the better songs, I'll say that much. But, um, the animation is gorgeous. I still love Lost in the Wood the most because it's like this freaking 80s ballad in, uh, in this, in this Disney movie. 
I think they should have killed off Olaf. I think Olaf's death would have made would have worked better if they made it permanent. You know, the fact that there, you know, there was an actual loss during this journey. And there's, you know, I think the fact that the only reason they brought him back is because he's a childhood favorite and then he makes money. You know, merchandising, weight-enticing, right? the real money from the movie is made. Um, also, Elsa is the Avatar. We've This movie is basically shown that. And uh, Bruni, the fire salamander, is adorable. And I love him. And he was woefully underused in the movie. So, yeah. Frozen 2. Still good. Um... Uh, and I kind of prefer it to the original, but yeah. Uh, I rewatched another one from my childhood, Dinosaur. Uh, I think I said in, like, my Disney ranking that this was the worst. I don't know. I, I have mixed feelings about this. Um, as a 2000 movie, its CG is really bad, especially since they try to do CG in live-action settings. So, like, they filmed live-action backgrounds and then CGI'd the dinosaurs in them. The CGI is not there yet. It is... We're, we are ten, we're almost uh, a decade and a half away from Favreau's ability to do that with The Jungle Book and The Lion King. Um, which I think those were rendered in, in the computer. Those were rendered in, like, engine, so to speak. Um... The, so, yeah, the CG holds up terribly. It is not good CG. Especially since they tried to be realistic. So it may have looked realistic for the time, but it does not hold up in the slightest. Uh, I do like the idea of them making the, a non-T-Rex the villain. Because so many times in dinosaur uh, fantasy media, T-Rex is the go-to villain. Here they use a lesser-known dinosaur that's, a, that's kind of a fan favorite in, like, dinosaur... And um, paleo communities, Carnotaurus. Uh, he's much smaller. Carnotaurus is way smaller than he is depicted in this movie. But the fact that they even notified, you know, realized Carnotaurus was a thing, they and recognize that is kind of neat. But uh, yeah, he's made to be T Rex sized when really he's more giraffe sized. I think is a good or elephant sized than T Rex. Um, also, lemurs are just like a thing. Sure, why not? Uh, the cast is interesting. You've got, like, Alfre Woodard and Della Reese mixed in with, like, D.B. Sweeney, who I think was better known. Who was, what was D.B. Sweeney in? Hold on. D.B. Sweeney, The Cutting Edge, is what he's apparently best known for. I could have sworn there was something else. He was all... He apparently voiced older Aang in The Legend of Korra. Wasn't he the... Wasn't he Flick in... He was Terry Fitzgerald in the Spawn movie. Okay, that's somebody else I'm thinking of who played Flick in uh, Bug's Life. Um, Cutting Edge, Leather Jackets, Blue Desert, Tales from the Crypt he was in an episode of. Yeah, seems to be like Dinosaur... And Cutting Edge, or his... Uh, he apparently voiced Sitka in Brother Bear, who I think was the oldest brother in that movie. So he came back to Disney for stuff. He was in Miracle at St. Anna. Uh, he's been on Leverage, Criminal Minds, 24, uh, The Event, whatever that is. Uh, he was in Taken 2, Atlas Shrugged 2. He played John Galt. Oof. Oh, buddy. Made sure to get out of there for the sequel, thankfully. <laughs> Um, 
But yeah, he was on Two and a Half Men for a hot second. Mountain Men. So yeah, not in a lot of stuff. But yeah, so you got him alongside... Um, who are the other ones? Here, let me pull up the voice cast. Alfred Woodard plays his mom. Della Reeves plays the Styracosaurus, the old Styracosaurus he hangs out with. Joan Plowright, who I, for, I for a hot second thought was um, the millionaire, was the wife of the millionaire on uh, on um, Gilligan's Island, but uh, she's better known for playing uh, Mrs. Wilson in the Dennis the Menace movie. And uh, Aunt Lucinda in the Spiderwick Chronicles. Uh, she hasn't acted in anything since 2009. Uh, let's go back to her. Started in the 50s. Da, 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 da. Something called Equus in 1977. Is that the front of the play? Yeah. They apparently, apparently, I didn't realize Equus was around this long. But uh, Richard Burton starred in a movie adaptation of it back in 1977. So did uh, Joan Plowright. I know her name from something else, though. Driving Miss Daisy TV movie. She played Daisy Worthen. So apparently after the movie, they made a TV version of it for some reason. Uh, she was in Last Action Hero. Jane Eyre. 101 Dalmatians as the nanny. Um... Scrooge and Marley as the narrator, George and the Dragon as Mother Superior. So she's been around the block in a bunch of stuff here and there. Uh, she plays Baleen the Brachiosaur, who I, I've learned since then is a is a dead tax uh, taxon. Uh, there's a lot of dinosaur names that have become well known, but since but in recent years have become dead uh, taxons, which are dead uh, genuses. In taxonomy, so like Troodon, which are featured in this movie, are uh, un are not official dinosaur names anymore, and Brachiosaurus has been re-identified as a as a giraffe titan, um, if I'm not mistaken. Let me pull it up. See, this is why I want to do a dinosaur podcast. I would absolutely love to do a dinosaur podcast with somebody. Uh, Brachiosaurus is a gene. I thought it was reassigned as Giraffe Titan. Maybe that's a specific. Okay, here we go. Namesake of the most popular depictions of Brachiosaurus are, in fact, based on Giraffe Titan, a genus of Brachiosaurid, a dinosaur found in uh, the Tendaguru Formation of Tanzania, described by German paleontologist Werner Janensch in 1914 as a species of Brachiosaurus, the Bronchi, but has moved on to its own genus in 2009. Three other species of Brachiosaurus have been named based on fossils found in Africa and Europe. Two are no longer considered valid, and the third has become the separate genus Lusa-Titan. So Brachiosaurus is official, uh, but most depictions come from the, come from uh, Giraffa-Titan fossils. Uh, the since been changed for many decades, known as the largest dinosaur, but recently da 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 da. Titanosaurus ba ba. Sauroposidon. That's made larger, be heavier than Giraffa-Titan. So yeah, basically, um, Brachiosaurus bronchi, the species name, what 
was the original taxa it was original name for it and then has since been re-evaluated and is now known as Giraffe Titan. But there is still a Brachiosaurus. So that's not what I'm thinking of. It's not like the Brontosaurus debate. See, those are the kind of things you could, you could hear me talk about on a dinosaur podcast. <laughs> if you want that to happen. Um, and anyway, yeah, this cast list is pretty solid. Uh, Hayden Panettiere plays like the baby lemur in the movie. Um, Kathy Cavadini is also in it as a random, as one of the additional voices. Uh, Juliana Margulies plays the love interest. Interesting. Um, I know her more, I think, for, like, reality stuff. Um, Samuel E. Wright plays the main antagonist besides the dinosaurs. Uh, he is best known as the voice of Sebastian. (laughs) So the voice of Sebastian plays the bad guy in Dinosaur crazy to think about <laughs> um but yeah uh it's a, it, so yeah it's got a solid voice cast but um and this the score is phenomenal the score is absolutely one of the best disney has ever made uh not as good as um i think their best score in terms of like the ba- the orchestral score is still hunchback hunchback is still the best but this is right up there it's like got uh um, this sort of tribal, like, percussive beat, like, and then, I, and then have, like, this chanting, uh, making it seem like this exotic, um, desert thing, and then, it has this big, epic, sweeping score once they hit the mainland. It's really solid. Um, they, they make one, they make one of the dinosaurs a dog. And they never really explain because every other dinosaur is at least sentient and sapient. And yet there's one dinosaur that's a dog. How does that work? How is that like the Pluto um, goofy thing where there's like, is there like a divergent path where some dogs stay dogs while other dogs gained sentience and became more human like? Like, what's the difference there? I don't know. Uh, also, there's an entire scene that takes place in a cave that you can't. It is almost unwatchable. It's so poorly lit. So yeah. Um, not to mention the fact that despite that dinosaurs have sharp teeth and claws and thumb spikes, there are iguanodons with thumb spikes. It is pretty much bloodless. That like even the carnotaurs come in. There's a bit at the end where Aladar, D.B. Sweeney's main character, is chomped on the back by the Carnotaurus as it's falling to its death. And there is no scarring, no blood, no, 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 you know, no sign that he was bitten there, even though we saw the teeth sink in during the slow-mo bit. Also, this movie has slow-mo bits for random reasons. It's weird. This this movie's weird. I, I, it's not great. So, yeah. It's, it's a hot mess too, but I'm such a dino nerd that I still kind of dig it. So yeah, Dinosaur, definitely not one of Disney's better better movies, but I still kind of dig it. Uh, Ralph, and most recently, Ralph Breaks the Internet. This is the one I watched most recently with my niece. Um, animation is still great. Uh, I dig the themes of having friends with diverging wants and desires and you know they want somebody wants to do something different with their life than what you had planned for your life and you know what happens when these friend when these things are you know a disagreement with each other 
and uh, the idea that you're quote unquote losing your best friend. So um, I do think there's not enough Felix and Calhoun. I feel like them raising the kids from Sugar Rush would be way more interesting if we saw cut back to them every so often because that's that was the whole put bit with the first movie is that here's some here's some bits with Ralph and Vanellope and then we cut back and see what Felix and Calhoun are doing and for some reason we're not getting that this time and it feels like a waste um I will I do I will say the casual princess stuff is cute but Disney's whole like, hey, look at us, we're commenting on ourselves, isn't you know, aren't you know, aren't we like self-aware and whatnot? That's the biggest, you know, big you know, the biggest just like you know, self-indulgent bit of the whole movie. It's the part I like the least. Especially at the end where like the princes are like, hey, we get to save a big strong man this time, except like Elsa, that was never a point in her movie. It feels like they're trying to make a commentary on stuff that hasn't been a thing in princess movies for a while now. Um, but yeah, uh, and even in some of the princess movies that they were in, like since the nineties, the Disney princesses were much better written and yeah, so it's kind of weird and archaic and this archaic notion of the Disney princesses, but, um, the stuff in them and their casual wear is super cute and I love it. Um, Tarashi P. Henson is completely unrecognizable as Yas, which is a terrible name. It just, like, it's completely ruined this saying in, like, the gay and specifically, like, gay uh, black community. And, oof, just, uh, yeah, hate it, hate it. Hate the name, but the character is fine. Um, Ralph discovering the comment section is, like, every internet creator is just like, oh, buddy, Oh, honey, don't. Please just save yourself the trouble. Uh, it doesn't get as bad, because the comment section is way worse than what Disney depicted it as. That's the scrubbed-down version of Falafel that the comment section is. But, um, yeah, I also dig the, the Slaughter Race song that Vanellope sings. It's super cool. I did not realize that Gal Gadot did her own singing in that song. So the idea of her playing uh, Esmeralda in that fan cast of, the, of a live-action Hunchback... I could see it happening since she does have a decent singing voice. Um, that being said, I would much rather uh, Esmeralda be played by a Romani actress than just somebody famous who's of Mediterranean descent. You know, hey, you're vaguely ethnic. You can play Esmeralda. Hey, how about we have an actual Romani play the Romani character? I, I don't know. Just my thought. Um, but yeah, the bit at the end where Ralph visits the dark web... And meets uh meets Kwatu from Total Recall. But then he becomes this he he goes from breaking the internet in terms of like filling it with memes to literally breaking the internet by helping to empower this virus who targets every website with his insecurities. And it literally ends with a kaiju-sized therapy session between him and Vanellope. And, yeah, and then it's okay to say goodbye to your friends when you're on different paths and and that you can always still stay in touch, you know? Just because you're in different places doesn't mean you have to stop being friends. And I think it's a good message for the movie, even though the movie itself is nowhere near as good as the original. But, yeah. Also, it ends on a Rickroll, and that's and I, I think that and it, it, it's led into with, hey, want to see a sneak preview of Frozen 2? Click here! And then it's Rickroll with uh, John C. Riley singing it. <laughs> I think that's cute, but, uh, yeah, it's, 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 um, I still, you know, so Ralph breaks the internet, 
I still holds up fairly well. It's not one of Disney's better sequels, but, um, well, I mean, it kind of is, but, like, I still think the original's way, way better. Anyway, that's all I watched this week. No Patreon corner. Um, Mar's still kind of coming up with, um, new stuff, and we have, new stuff for me to watch and we haven't really had any new patrons yet if you would like to suggest stuff for the show you can do so by supporting us on patreon but uh since we don't have that let's uh head over to the let's take a break and uh come back with the discussion on iconoclasm fun into every generation a slayer is born one girl in all the world a chosen one and alongside her are the Watchers. We are the Watchers. Once more with Feeling is a 20th anniversary Buffy fancast where we gather and watch episodes of Buffy, discuss them, and release it every Tuesday. Grr. Arg. So as you heard me talk about throughout the review section, uh, I have opinions on uh, Lynn Manuel and Rudyard Kipling. And um, before I get into that, I kind of wanted to lead into it with an article I read in uh, my local paper, uh, the Akron Beacon Journal. Uh, it's an article written by Michael Graham, who is a local history professor. And he wrote the article uh, kind of commenting on how history is echoing itself. Uh, because the iconoclasm has kind of returned in this country. and Well, it's kind of a returned in society, I should say. In Europe, in the, 15th, in the 1500s, in the 16th and 17th century, there was a massive movement by the Calvinists to destroy all level of Catholic imagery because they felt that it was graven and idolatry and not in true worship of the Lord Almighty. And yeah, that's it was the it led into a massive rift in uh, Christianity that it can still be felt to this day. And it they would they they actively destroyed statues and stained glass, tore down churches. There was all it was it was a level of destruction on an unprecedented scale at the time. So uh, that has since returned, not f- not for religious reasons, but for historical reasons and cultural reasons. Now we're seeing that I ca- that I kind of iconoclasm in the form of what people wanting to take down Confederate monuments and statues, and raising the question of you know the legitimacy of Mount Rushmore, because it was built on uh, Native American land at a time, you know, by a white supremacist, you know, under the auspices of, you know, saying how great America is on land that that was technically not theirs to do it on. So, yeah, they're bringing that into question again, especially since um, this past weekend Trump tried to do a... uh, a, a, a something around Mount Rushmore and, you know, because it's it's America's birthday weekend and he wanted to be all patriotic and he was met with protests, especially from indigenous people of the area. So, yeah, the iconoclasm has returned, this time in more of a historical circumstance. But that's literal, like, physical iconoclasm. 
I'm more of an iconoclast in the metaphorical sense, in the metaphysical sense, in the idea that we tear down our perceptions of people. And I've always, I've talked about this in the show before. I'm sure I've did an episode on iconoclasm in terms of like, you know, death of the author, killing your heroes, that sort of thing. Um, the idea of like, when do we forgive really awful uh, filmmakers? And um, I think this has become another debate. Not uh, again, uh, maybe not debate, but like discussion point, especially since the riot, especially since um, J.K. Rowling has gone full mask off and let everybody know. Because, I mean, she's been doing it for a while. If you've been following um, trans individuals and trans, you know, you know, figures in the you know, on like social media, they've mentioned how J.K. Rowling has a very negative opinion of them and their existence. And is very much like an awful person in that regard. Like she, she does not regard trans um, identities as valid, and see, it is like does it under the auspices of like feminism and like oh, what about the women? Aren't they at risk? And it's like trans women are more at risk in cis spaces than cis women are. And yeah, she's just pulling out old arguments that trans women are in fact are cis men in drag, and they're trying to invade women's uh, cis women's spaces, and it's all tired. And it and most of um, feminism has kind of moved on from that point, except J.K. Joanne just keeps one to bring keep wanting to bring it up. And in fact, she was cited. Her whole spiel recently was cited as a re, as a reason for um, not passing a trans a sort of trans protection order somewhere. I forget. I think it was in. The, I don't know if it was federally or locally or some local municipality or state, something state level, something like that. But she was cited. So yeah, thanks, Joanne, for affecting policy and ruining trans people's lives. You are awful. And um, I mentioned Lin Manuel and my and my opinions on him. Well, as likable as he is, especially as the quote unquote fourth McElroy, if you're into that community. Lin-Manuel is not as cool as he likes to think he is. Um, outside of his, outside of make, you know, making hip-hop musicals, he and his dad are part, are major figures in um, Puerto Rican politics in the, in the sense that they keep advocating for laws and um, or orders by the government to essentially hand it over to corporate interests and banks. They are, they act like they're Puerto Rican proud, but people who live in Puerto Rico know them more as in support of really terrible practices, especially like the austerity measures that put have ruined so much of the island and put in, in such terrible debt. So, man, yeah, the Miranda family is not as cool as a as a, as Lynn likes to make them think they are. Not to mention the fact that. Uh, Lynn himself, as well as other members of um, the Hamilton cast, speak favorably about Autism Speaks. Now, this is one I'm more personally affected by, because whereas Joanne affects my friends who are trans, Lin-Manuel and the cast of Hamilton supporting Autism Speaks is them telling me that I have a disease that needs to be cured. It's them saying, my condition is not valid, I can't live with it, I have to be fixed. 
that's what Autism Speak stands for. They're an anti-autist person, you know, autism spectrum organization. They are viewed as a hate group by the autism community. Um, and for a major figure like Lin-Manuel to still, still favorably support them, he has yet to say, I regret supporting Autism Speaks. I want, I care about the autistic community and I want to actually support them. So don't support Autism Speaks, support this organization instead, like the Autism, uh, what's a better, I'm, I'm trying to remember some of the better organizations to support and they're never on the top of my head. Uh, ba 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 Autism Speaks is the first one to come up, of course. Um, not Autism Speaks. Because, yeah, that one's run entirely by neurotypical, you know, autism moms who think their babies are broken and need to be fixed. Um, cause they also peddle all kinds of levels of like fake cures for autism and yeah, that's awful. Uh, trying to find, yeah, why well, do not support autism speaks? Where's, where's a better, damn it. Uh, autism speaks alternatives. Jeez, Google, quit supporting Autism Speaks. Here we go. Autism Speaks on Autism on Reddit. There's an Autism Reddit subreddit? Why have I not joined this? Here we go. Uh, ASAN, the Autistic Self-Advocacy Network, is a major one. Autism Partnership. Uh, Autist yeah, the Autistic Self-Advocacy Network. Those are the ones that actually incorporate the... Um, the, the the people on the spectrum in the in the organization as well and is about more of like self-advocate you know once again self-advocacy uh, help, helping autistic people speak for themselves um oh good autism speaks is also uh is also tar targeting trans trans youth so that's fun hey that was another one that uh Joanne talked about. Joanne talked, yeah, Joanne was talking about, um, how trans women, you know, trans men are, you know, you know, are on the spectrum, you know, how they're, you know, how many people transition that are on the spectrum as though like, oh, they're autistic. They can't possibly know what transitioning means. Please go away, Joanne. How about we take Harry Potter from you? You can go off in some swamp somewhere and be a horrible person into the trees and leave us the hell alone. Damn it. Uh, anyway, yeah, Lin-Manuel supports Autism Speaks, has yet to recant his support. So yeah, that's fun. Knowing the cast of Hamilton thinks I need to be cured. That's fun. Uh, anyway, um, I also brought up Richard Kipling. He is a white supremacist. He wrote a whole spiel called White Man's Burden about how the white people have to take care of the brown of the non-white people because they clearly can't. And he is an awful person for, you know, just outright 
awful, 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 awful dude. So, fun fact about that. Now then, that brings up the question. With guys, dead people like Kipling and Lovecraft and so many other other just like awful people that can't be un- made unawful because they're dead, what all do we forgive? Do we forgive? Should we forgive these things? Honestly, no. There's no reason to forgive a dead person for being a piece of garbage. You can't forgive them for it. They're dead. I think the better notion is that we don't lionize people. Real-world people should not be made into heroes. And um, unfortunately, there is no real counter to this kind of thing because cancel culture is a joke. Cancel culture ha- is a farce that um, that we see now because there's always the trending hashtag on Twitter of the X person is over party. As though like some... Sl- and normally you would think it would be for like, oh, this person sexually assaulted a minor. Or this person, you know, is a raging bigot who hates, hates people of color. No, it's safe for people who like said, eh, not, eh, I kind of think K-pop sucks. Or people who, it's made by rabid fan bases who are more taking the piss than anything else, I feel like. It's like going so hyperbolic with canceling this person for the slightest offense that it, it's become a complete and total farce. That, and not to mention the fact that canceling has yet to work. Cancel culture has yet to actively make somebody's career end because they always come back or their career just never, they hit like a road bump. Like, remember when all the crap about Pro Jared came out, how he was propositioning his young young female fans for stuff, for like, I think, nude pictures and, you know, the fact that he was using the guise of polyamory and having a polyamorous relationship to cheat on his wife. Uh, people apparently just completely forgot about that and his and he's never stopped making YouTube videos. Hey, JonTron has said some horrible things about black people. He still, he, people still support him. Cancel culture has yet to actively make fans of somebody stop being fans when they were revealed, that to, revealed to be awful. Cancel culture is a joke. Saying cancel culture is a threat is like saying, um... Ah, what's a good analogy? What's a good analogy for, like, people overblowing, like, the, um... Ah, what's a good one? Um, there's something like this. Uh, there's something like this in, like, media or, like, the... In, like, the cultural zeitgeist. Um... Ah, shoot, I got nothing. Um... But yeah, saying that cancel culture is a real threat is like, is like saying, um, it's like, it's basically like saying this, this, saying something that is essentially a joke is, is threatening you, you know, it's, oh, um, perfect. I, here's a perfect example. Um, now imagine this is going to take, this is going to be like a, a, a bad metaphor, but go with it in Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Tim the Enchanter talks about this killer monster, and it turns out to be a rabbit. Well, instead of the rabbit actually being a killer monster that needed to be taken out with explosives, imagine it was just a rabbit. 
that's cancel culture. Play, Tim the Enchanter playing up the dangers of a rabbit, and it turns out to literally just be a rabbit. That's that's the cancel culture. That's people saying cancel culture is a threat to them. Because cancel culture has yet to actually work. It's, it's become a farce. There are people who... There's like a bit I followed, uh, Salty K... I started following Salty uh, DK Dan on, on YouTube, and he actively canceled himself, and people were uh, shitposting the whole thing. So yeah, the X is over party, cancel culture is on social media is a farce. Nothing... It is yet to actively change affect anything if anything people saying crappy things on social media getting them fired is more likely and that's at the at the base level famous people have yet to really be rectified by how awful they are you know even even mel gibson's back making another being in another movie even though he's in it for like a half a second so yeah um Cancel culture is not real. It doesn't. It doesn't stop. It hasn't. It has yet to actively stop these people. Louis C.K. is still doing stuff. These, you know, Shane Dawson and um, the Logan brothers are still being awful. And there's. It has yet to. Nobody has yet to be officially canceled and have their career actually stop because of cancel culture. It can, you know, people can come target you. The most you're going to get is, like, mean tweets, which, hey, click. Now you've blocked them. Problem solved. So, like, yeah, people can still talk about it, but it's not actively going to affect you, really. So, yeah. Um, the most, like, the other, the only other thing I can say about this is that I'm not an anarchist, but I do adhere to this kind of idea, this slogan that anarchism has. I'm, I, it's a modified anarchist slogan. In anarchism, they go. They use the slogan "No gods, no masters," and I've modified that to uh, be more iconoclastic and less anarchistic by saying "No gods, no heroes." Don't make, don't revere people as as you know, being above criticism. Everyone you think is a hero or this all supreme deity, they're so amazing, they are untouchable. They're human. Do not uplift pe human beings beyond their uh, station. No gods, no heroes. And in fact, that's going to be the name of the episode. <laughs> so you've already know so you've already heard my position on it. So yeah, no gods, no heroes. Don't make people try to be, be don't try to make out people to be better than who they are. Just a person. It's just a person you can respect, but always be ready to lose that respect because they're all the um, capability of, you know, doing something to make you lose it. Nobody and nothing is above criticism, and as long as people are being uh, awful, they should be held to account. So, yeah. Ask Lynn manuel if he still supports Autism Speaks, and until we get an answer, uh, an official answer from him, you know, within the last couple of days, I still, I'm not gonna hold my breath. So, yeah. The fact that he's, the fact that he, you know, and of course, you know, always hold people to task every level of influence and power nobody should be above reproach so if somebody's being awful you challenge them on it as long as they're doing it in a way that's like actually terrible not like not like differences of opinion and things like we're talking about somebody who's you know once again supporting a, a hate group like autism speaks or actively speaking out against um, uh, uh you know a a um what's the what's the term 
what's the term? Uh, ah, crap. My brain is my brain is gone. Oh well. Uh, but yeah, speaking uh, speaking out against a an underclass of people who are just trying to get their basic rights recognized. So yeah, yeah. Hold people to account and never stop challenging the the, the gods and heroes that a society likes to hold up. Nobody is above reproach. There are no heroes. There are no gods. And we should stop acting like there are. I mean, if you believe in a god or have some religious thing, but don't make people out to be gods and heroes. Stick to the <laughs> stick to the heroes you're used to. It's easy for Superman to be a hero because unless it's unless he's got a crappy writer, he's not going to be a terrible person because he's a fictional character. That's why I'm okay with making fictional characters out to be heroes and, you know, I, I people to revere and respect more so than actual people. Because at least, at least um, heroes aren't going to disappoint you unless they have a terrible writer. Anyway, there's another dark topic. This has been, this has not been a great series of episodes. Let's talk about all the terrible things happening in society. Anyway, time for the Bambi moment. Because that, with the discussion portion, that about does it for this episode, which means it is time for the plugs. Tweet, tweetily, tweet, tweetily, tweet, tweetily, la, tra, la, la. <laughs> I'm going to do that from now on. Uh, sorry, Disney. Uh, I'm going to do that from I'm not going to play the actual clip. I'm just going to sing it. But every time I go from a super darker, serious topic to doing the plugs, I'm going to I'm going to follow it up with tweet, tweetly, tweet, tweetly, tra la la. Let's sing a gay little spring song. Oh, <laughs> uh, damn it. If you're listening to this podcast, you're most likely listening to us on our homepage at GumbyCatNetworks.com. And if you want to keep up to date on all the new episodes as they come out, you can do so by whitelisting us on your ad blocker and favoriting us on your web browser. While you're here, check out all of our other fine programming, such as Living in the Stacks, which I'm hopeful to get some microfiches out while we're kind of decompressing from all of the everything. Uh, we're still doing re- uh, bi-weekly episodes of uh, Dungeons & Dragon types. We've recently met the regional uh, villain team called Team Strongarm. So if you want to check that out, that's over at Dungeons & Dragon Types. And be sure to check out all of Donna's stuff over at Snarcast, Beyond the Cabin in the Woods, Once More with Feeling, The Family Business. And if you yourself are a podcaster and like to join our fledgling little network, send us a message at gumbycatnetworks at gmail.com and we'll get back to you. You can also uh, find this show on your various podcast providers such as Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spreaker, Stitcher, iHeartMedia. If we're not on your po- your podcasting, you know, your podcast app or whatever of choice please let us know and we'll try to add ourselves to it you'd also um you know leave a five-star rating and review let people know that you like the show and that they should check it out as well you can also uh support the show on social media follow us on facebook at facebook.com slash popcorn junkie twitter.com at corn junkie pod um Instagram at Popcorn Junkie Podcast, barely there. Letterboxd.com uh, at Corn Junkie Pod. I, I do audio, uh, written reviews of uh, everything I'm going to cover film-wise on there. Uh, you can also follow me on Stardust at Popcorn Junkie. I'm trying to get back into that, man. Uh, I know it's going to be way easier once the theaters open up. Uh, but yeah, I'm going to see if I can try to get more of that done this week. But um, follow me there. You can also... Uh, Support the show on Patreon. If you want to, all you have to do is donate as little as one dollar a month, and you can, you know, suggest content for the show by um, 
by uh, you know, mentioning movies for me to watch for Patreon Corner. Or if you want to help suggest stuff for, like, make a better movie or uh, munch, do a munch-along that's Patreon-exclusive, we can do that. Uh, I'm also um, planning on doing video content, finally, for the show. Because this... I've talked about this before. This podcast was born out of an attempt to do uh, video reviews a la The Nostalgia Critic and the Channel Awesome crew. And they still do stuff like that. They still do regular video content. I am thinking of doing that again. This time, making my YouTube channel specifically about uh, retrospectives. Because if you go to my old uh, domain, uh, Daily Motion, I tempted to do that with Godzilla, got about four episodes in, and then it completely crashed and burned. Now, I think, I think I'm going to, now, if you've noticed, I've been rewatching a lot of Disney animated content. And I think I'm going to try and do, essentially, like, I know Doug Walker did a Disney Sember where he covered all of this in, like, little you know, narrated over bits where he gave his thoughts on it. I want to do that, but not be an awful piece of garbage. So I'm coming up with a name. I'm going to come up with a name for it. Um, uh, something, you know, something, some kind of, I'm going to give one for each retrospective. Cause I've got one in mind for Pokemon. I've got one in mind for, um, for Godzilla. Cause I want to do those. Uh, I've got one in mind for peanuts. Cause I want to do that too. I've been wanting, I wanted to do that in the lead up to the peanuts movie. And so we're, I'm going to do one for, I'm going to come up with one for Disney and then we'll see about other retrospectives as well. But I kind of want to turn my channel into a retrospective channel uh, and then maybe do, um, do uh, some kind of other reviews there, do other kind of video reviews there if people are interested. But we're, but um, that I won't officially announce that that's happening until I've actively gotten some some work done on it. So I'm going to see about, um, making it, writing a couple episodes, maybe like test episodes and, um, and see how it goes. But, uh, I also, the problem is also getting access to all that, uh, all that, um, all that, uh, video footage. So that's going to be another hurdle by doing it video. I've been wanting, I'm thinking of maybe also doing it as an audio thing, but I also don't know which people would prefer. So if you're listening and would love to, and you have a preference for video um, retrospective versus audio retrospectives, let me know. Send me a message on social media. So yeah, uh, and of course you can also send me, send all your thoughts on what I've talked about to uh, Gumby uh, to uh, Popcorn Junkie Podcast at gmail.com, and I'll get back to you either privately or mention you on the next episode. So yeah, that does it for this week's episode. Until next time, I'm John Bailey, and always remember. No gods, no heroes. The theme song for Popcorn Junkie is Funky Popcorn by The M. Look up Funky Popcorn by the letter M on SoundCloud for more of their music. Artwork provided by Nafio. N-A-F-Y-O. Look up nafio.deviantart.com for more of his artwork. And, once again, today and tomorrow, now and forever, Black Lives Matter and trans rights are human rights. And people, you know, now re-raising the question of... I didn't quite catch that. Could you please repeat it? God damn it, Siri.
Nobody was talking to you. Damn it. <laughs>